Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, there's nobody better, Tom, to speak to about the implications of this Brexit vote for markets worldwide, for governments and central banks worldwide, than Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute, a man who has served as a monetary policymaker here in the sceptered aisle. He is uh, now back in Washington. Adam, good morning to you. Um, it is it is for those who are here on trading desks an absolutely stunning morning. Can you put into perspective for us, though, what it actually means longer term? Sure, Michael, I'll try. Uh, thank you for having me. The longer term has to be thought of in a few ways. First, for the UK, this is unmitigated bad, because at a minimum, you have ongoing uncertainty about the coherence of the UK with respect to Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, as well as who's going to be in charge politically, are they competent, as well as will people be wanting to invest, as well as we don't know what the relationship with the EU in terms of trade and migration will be going forward. So just whole on terrible for the UK. Um, for the longer term, if you start then thinking through what this means for Europe, it gets nasty, but not as inevitably bad. Uh, so clearly, fall in the euro, more than offset by declining confidence, rise in political risk. How does the European, how do the Europeans channel this? Does this mean that you have Marie Le Pen in France and the Front National and other right-wing parties getting more credibility that both they can succeed and that they should succeed in being anti-European and certainly anti-euro? Possibly. Um, but does this also possibly lead to a European push for more sensible integration um, and more reasonable accommodation of some of the non-German core countries? Might. It might. And that would be better in the end. Um, there's clearly going to be a problem that without a central fiscal authority and with the ECB already below the zero lower bound, that you will probably have a, at least a slight recession coming out of this. Uh, again, the, the decline in the euro will help Germany, but it's not going to make that much difference to anyone else but Spain, maybe. Um, and then you have to think about long-term what this means for the ability of the so-called elites to uh, keep open internal borders in Europe, because free movement of labor, particularly from Eastern Europe to the, and Southern Europe to the rest of Europe, has been both a source of growth but a huge source of political cohesion. And if it turns into now a source of political division, um, the upshot could be very bad. What, would, what, what odds would you put on that? You worked over here. Uh, you've got a feel for uh, where Europe, European leaders are coming from. Is it likely that they can do what they have so far been unable to do? Um, I think they can do something. And I think Chancellor Merkel has, will, has or will make clear that, that this is a threat to the whole project and must be addressed accordingly. And if she says that, it will help. 
I think, as a wake-up call to more liberal in the Economist magazine European sense, more, more free market people throughout Europe, this will be a wake-up call that they have to actually take this seriously. The other thing is there are things that the Europeans can do in terms of banking union, fiscal stimulus, uh, being honest about rewriting the the fiscal rules, uh, treatment visibly of the disaffected in certain other countries, and taking a common approach to migration from outside Europe that they can do without constitutional change or huge expenditures. And I think if they do that, they have a chance of rallying people. It just depends how much they're able to turn fear into constructive activity. Uh, Overnight, I was getting a lot of messages from traders pointing out the drops in the pound and other currencies and suggesting central banks were going to have to step in. So far, the only confirmation we have is that uh, the Swiss did. What's the calculation in when a currency is moving uh, and markets are falling as they are today for for a central banker to decide whether or not to, to get into the markets? It's a fair question. There are several things involved. One consideration for the U.K. is, frankly, they need to gamble on the exchange rate fall, helping to cushion the adjustment of uh, big setbacks in their trading relationship and in confidence and investment. So the Bank of England is going to be unlikely to intervene to stop the currency falling, at least in the short term. Uh, If it continues to stay down, it creates a lot of inflation. They'll have to. Looking at the Europeans, they have a more minor version of the same thing. Um, it is a little surprising the ECB has not yet reacted, at least in terms of issuing some kind of reassuring statement. I mean, they've obviously done a little of that. But, you know, it, it, when you're talking about exchange rates of the major economies, it's got to be seen in the context of uh, international cooperation. Um, and so it's very interesting to see the Japanese are waiting um, trying to figure out, because they're being horribly harmed by this, whether or not they uh, have any support either to behave like the Swiss in terms of benign neglect from others or for coordinated intervention. I think given that the central banks of the world are already near the zero lower bound, uh, already have done a lot of QE, uh, they're going to likely hold their power powder, excuse me, a little while longer, um, and then that will, of course, feed markets who keep expecting the central banks to bail them out. So things may get worse before they get better. Final point, Michael: that exchange rate policy is, remember, really under finance ministries of the U.S. Treasury and not under the central banks themselves. So that's another complication to why they can't just react. What about? Uh you know, acting as individuals, uh, can the the Bank of Japan live with 102 uh, at this point? I, I mean, they certainly can. Um, the, more importantly, it's not what the BOJ can. I know you didn't mean this way. It's what Japanese business and the economy can. Right. You know, uh, it, it, this is the 102 is still a huge depreciation from where it was inappropriate and from and which was consistent with very high profits in the Japanese export sector a while ago. Um, But I think there has to be some sense communicated by the BOJ and more importantly by the Japanese government that they will not let an exchange rate movement of flight to quality and fear back to Japan completely disrupt their recovery, and I think that's fair. Um, So is the line going to be drawn at 100 because it's a nice round number? Maybe. 
but as I said, I think I think it's the Japanese government, for its own sake, but also responsibly, as G7 chair, is trying to reach out to other governments and figure out can they get coordination or at least approval on acting. Well, if you were advising Janet Yellen, what would you have her say? Uh, they have to worry about the dollar getting too strong as well. It uh, the the dollar index is up two and a half percent today. Uh, what what what's the Fed's point of view here? I think the Fed's point of view is going to initially be reassuring people, just as Mark Carney from the Bank of England did, that the banking system can take it, that there isn't imminent systemic risk in the 2008 sense here. Um, but then you're right, they have to think about what does the combination of a stronger dollar and are likely a very sharp slowdown in the UK, which is small, and Europe, which is big. Um, going to do to the U.S. outlook. I think, however, that, you know, a 2% move is probably at the low end of what I would have expected to happen to the U.S. index, dollar index, and uh, if that's all we get, then the Fed can just say they're postponing rate decisions. They don't need to really do very much yet. What's the overall threat to the U.S. economy, do you think? We, we are long in the expansion. And we are uh, seeing uh, drop in profits. The economy is sending mixed signals. Is there a preemptive move for the for the Fed here? It isn't based on the currency, but based on uh, the economic outlook. I think they've sort of boxed themselves in. If they now, this was the problem with all the promised rhetoric about tightening cycle and all, which is understandable and which was arguable. But now if they turn around and say, well, we, we, we're going to cut, um, then the, the question comes, uh, there would be a, probably a terrified reaction by markets and, more importantly, households saying, oh, my God, the, what do they know? And they're out of ammo. You know, and you don't want economic decisions to be made on that kind of tactical basis. But in this particular situation, that has to be a consideration, that if they really reverse now, um, it, it, it could initially at least do more harm than good. I think, ultimately, the slowdown that we're looking at from abroad and the strengthening of the dollar will not be enough to tip the U.S. into recession. And frankly, if, if our dysfunctional Congress just did something on fiscal policy, we wouldn't even have to worry about that. You also have expertise in Asia, and we're seeing most Asian currencies outside of the yen uh, much lower today. Um, are they uh, going to be in trouble because of this? I guess part of it, the question is, you know, how long does this last? But um, is there a problem in Asia that is worse than for uh, the developed nations? I think not, actually, Michael. I think the I think we can think of this as essentially a decreasing relationship with economic distance. The UK is really not that important for most of emerging Asia, or even for China. Uh, the the euro area is important, but it's not like it's been a huge growth market for uh, Asian exports for several years now. Um, so the actual damage to Asia, I think, is going to be quite limited. Um, it, it really is going to be about 
Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, and then countries more closely tied to Europe. I, I think the Chinese, there is going to be a bit of a dance between the Chinese, Koreans, and Japanese on exchange rates. And they might even, I don't think ever explicitly, but they might not mind a, a, a coordinated uh, decline in all three. Um, yeah. But, you know, they always like that. So I, I wouldn't, I, I, I think we don't need to focus on Asia at this moment. I think there are places in Latin America where the ties via Spain and Portugal to Europe are disproportionately large in Latin America for obvious reasons, and Brazil and Venezuela is already quite fragile, so I actually would be a little more worried there than emerging Asia. Adam Posen, thank you very much for joining us this morning on uh, what is an extraordinary day. Jeffrey uh, Rosenberg is BlackRock's chief fixed income strategist. Uh, I, you can't call anything uh, that we're, we're doing right now normal, I guess, Jeff, but uh, at least it seems we have gotten back to within uh, tradable ranges um, for, for people who are in the fixed income markets. Well, yes, we are back in in tradable ranges, but the but the gap is is significant. And you know, you, you, we were up uh, all, all night. People are waking up this morning and, and they're driving in. And it's kind of like my wife this morning said, "Have you been up all night?" And and she asked a very simple question. The answer was yes. Uh, but why is this bad? Why are financial markets having this reaction? And 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 it's worth taking a step back to just think about that and talk about that which which you know when you're in the weeds it's it's very clear but when you're not it it may come as a surprise why is this vote out of europe so important and it's so important because economic growth is fragile and a shock to economic growth is what this is all about. Why is it a shock? Because it's a confidence shock. And the implications for us, for U.S. markets, clearly the implications are in Europe. Clearly the biggest financial market movements are in Europe. But, but why do you see the flight to quality? Why do you see the impact in U.S. stock markets? Is because of the threat that these external shocks have had. We've seen them over the course of the seven or eight years since the global financial crisis. And they've had negative repercussions to confidence. And that matters when you're not growing very much, because a small change can, can be a big turning point for uh, the outlook, not just for the UK or for Europe, but for the global economy. Was well, there any concern about being able to trade with inventory with liquidity at this point? So liquidity is... Um, Always a concern. You know, you've had a, a, a big shock in terms of. Now, now, now Tom didn't want to give you the standard deviation move. It's a four oh, standard no. deviation move. It's a it's a big move. But the point of these big moves is that when you when you have big moves like this, what is it reflective of? It's reflective of an entire portion of the market all trying to move in one direction. And what's really been tricky about this market is, go back over the last couple of days, what was happening leading up into the market? What was happening was markets were building in expectations for the opposite. They were building in expectations for the remain outcome to occur, which meant that positioning was all offsides. So that when you have this surprise event, what ends up happening is you get this imbalance in orders. 
orders. Well, when you have imbalance in orders, liquidity is about the willingness of buyers and sellers to come together. But when you have everybody on one side, what ends up happening is that there is no liquidity until the price adjusts. That's why you're seeing these big gaps. The price adjusts, and that change in price doesn't happen smoothly because you have buyers and sellers all the way through that adjustment. You need to have the gap in the, in the prices, which you're seeing across bonds, stocks, currencies, commodities. And then with that new level, now you get the balancing out, and then your liquidity, the ability to have buyers and sellers come back into the market starts to reassert itself. As you were highlighting now, you're starting to see yeah. that, that happen. Jeff, uh, uh, a lot of people look at the, oh, we look at the TV and we look at the rate, we listen to the radio and we listen to people talk. Guys like you look at the quote unquote spread market. Okay, things are moving, but what are those differences, those compare and contrasts of yield? What do they show you this morning? So we, we did this exercise, and, and, and so the exercise that we did was, what do we think is going to happen on a, on a Brexit? What do we think is going to happen on a, a Remain? And, and, and it's, it's pretty interesting to see that a lot of the expectations for the macro indicators, what we thought would happen to uh, the sterling, for example, what we thought would happen to the euro, what we thought would happen to the 10-year, those things came in around expectations. There's a Light to quality into U.S. Treasury rates. There's a fear in terms of uh, the impact on Europe reflected in a negative movement in the, Europe, the value of the European currency. Clearly, the biggest impact is this nine or ten percent move uh, that we're seeing in the, in the in the sterling. But where we've seen in some of the spread markets a little bit less reaction, which is a little bit surprising, is in Europe and, and the periphery of Europe, which means Spain and Italy. You're seeing a negative reaction. Action there. You're seeing spreads widen out, reflective of risk aversion and uncertainty. Clearly, here we're talking about political uncertainty and what this means mm-hmm. for, for Europe. But it's been less than what we might have anticipated. And a lot of that has to do with the right. uncertainty of the political response and the uncertainty of the monetary right. policy response. You have a very powerful monetary policy response going on in Europe, and that's limiting right. here some of the spread moves. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, a, a pro question, and I say this with respect for your compliance issues and your general counsel issues. With the bond market moving like this, do you have a measurement or does your firm have a measurement of banking fragility right now? Are the banks the same as they were 48 hours ago? Or is there a new new for that interesting calculus between what we observe in finance and the income statement and liquidity statements of banks? So so first, uh, clearly here, when we go through these kinds of financial shocks, the focus is on the financial system. The financial system is the transmission of financial shocks into the real economy. So just to frame the importance of the question, so we look at what are the financial indicators saying about the fragility of the financial companies in that system. And then to, to, to be a little bit more specific, it matters, well, where are we looking? Are we looking at UK banks? Are we looking at European banks? Okay. So with that all being said, and you 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 said it in the in, in earlier, uh, this is this is not 
2007. This is not 2008. Clearly, we are seeing some risk aversion and negative price indications. Spreads are widening. The valuations are falling, particularly for subordinated European paper. But it's not outside of what we had anticipated. Yeah. And, and, and from the initial reaction, uh, it, it, things have things have have stabilized. And what's yeah. important here is that unlike what what people may be really worried about and concerned, oh, this is is this a big shock? Is this going right, to right, transmit right. into big systemic risk? It was my earlier point. The degree of intervention, the degree of support for bank liquidity, the ability of banks to operate to finance right. their their balance sheets is orders of magnitude greater than what we right. had in place well, prior to the last crisis. And that's dampening the impact. Uh, Jeffrey, I believe there's an election in Spain, an election in Italy. I guess the UK economy's troubled, but they're worse. Is that the right statement? Uh, certainly, the UK economy has been the bright spot uh, for yeah. the post-financial crisis environment, particularly relative to the to those other economies. This obviously is a challenge to that, and you had many studies and forecasts out talking about the risks to the UK economy, and that's very much what the UK stock market, particularly domestic versus versus more internationally oriented stocks, those. Differentials uh, with domestics down almost double what the more internationally oriented UK stocks are telling you is this is quite negative for the domestic UK economy. We do have some headlines out that the G7 finance ministers have finished a conference call and uh, they say they will consult closely on market movements and stability and cooperate as appropriate. So it doesn't look like any immediate. Um, involvement. You, by, you and I could have written that. <laughs> yeah. uh, you could have predicted that one. So, Jeff, how long does this market disruption last? Is there any way to tell at this point? Is this sort of just the knee-jerk reaction to the surprising news and then by Monday it settles down, or could we still be going through this on Monday? So, Mike, Mike that's, a, that's a great question, but we, we want to separate it between the initial market reaction, which is really about this positioning shock, markets were offsides, the liquidity mismatch that we talked about. That's going to be the initial reaction. That's not going to, we're not going to be trading with this kind of volatility for every single day. So that's going to settle down. But where it settles down and how it settles down is really about the longer run implications. And what are those longer run implications? The the key question here is how much does this political uncertainty translate into policy uncertainty, trade uncertainty, and how much does that affect the real economy? Because the real economy, if you're a businessman, think, sorry, business person thinking about uh, investments, whether they're domestic or international, making new hires, uncertainty is bad. If you're a consumer thinking about making a major purchase, you see this uncertainty. How do most American consumers see the implications? of the UK vote, they're going to see it in the domestic mm -hmm. stock market. So that's where the longer run implications are. What does the uncertainty do to growth? And that becomes yeah. a, a self-fulfilling uh, idea, because if we're worried about the growth, then those worries weigh on stock markets. The weighing on stock markets weighs on confidence. And right. you can get yourself back into an environment where uh, it, it can be a negative feedback. Uh. We're out of time. Jeffrey Rosenberg, somehow I think we'll do this again. He is with BlackRock.
figuring out where we go from here is not going to be necessarily that easy for economists, including uh, Brendan Brown. He is head of economic research for Mitsubishi UFJ. Thanks for coming into the studio today on this extraordinarily busy day. Uh, we watch the U.S. economic indicators to try to figure out what the Fed is going to do. But at the moment, um, what central banks are going to do seems to be in a, in a bit of a, an air pocket uh, until they figure out where markets go and the impact of all this. Yeah, and, and of course the, the cynical view is that the Fed to a considerable extent is following the S&P 500 anyhow, so uh, a big consideration is what's going to be happening to that in response to European news. And um, given the strengthening of the dollar we're getting against, against the European currencies and the huge political uncertainties in um, Europe, it's likely we, we do see continued pressure downwards on, on S&P 500. So that would sort of argue in favor of the Yellen Fed um, doing nothing. I want to congratulate you, not as a Eurosceptic. The subtle thing here is Brendan Brown is not a Eurosceptic. Brendan Brown has just said the too-good-to-be-true scenario leaves one to question. We see okay corporate performance in Europe. Can these political shocks lead to a better system that begins to act like the good corporate performance in Europe? Ultimately, yes, there's a road that's opened up now with the British decision to leave that could lead to uh, a, a better Europe, a, a more prosperous Europe, a more politically democratic Europe, and uh, a, a Europe which uh, has a greater weight um, geopolitically. There's dangers along the way, um, and those dangers could um, cause the corporate sector to be even more hesitant about um, investing mm -hmm. in, in the meantime. Well, the, the question is... Uh how long will it take to get to that ideal state? Because uh, you have to question whether people will still believe in it if uh, there is a, any kind of severe recession or negative uh, knock-on effects that last from this decision today. Well, I think there's two crucial political developments beside the change of government in the UK, and there the critical question is going to be what sort of government is formed. Is it going to be a Thatcherite free market type of government, which could actually see the UK and uh, exit this period of uncertainty and move on fairly quickly? Um, on the U in, in Germany, the key issue is the future of the Merkel government. Um, does, does it fall in, in response to growing anti-European -Euro sentiment in Germany? and um, what, mm. what sort of shift does that produce. Um, the, the pity in all of this is that the U.S. is out of action. You know, and in an ideal world, the U.S. would be putting pressure on Germany and the U.K. to come to a, a deal, and the German manufacturing industry is certainly going to be putting pressure on Merkel to come to a deal. Um, the obstacle is going to be France, but the Obama administration, as we know, favors France, favors the EU, is in no position to do a deal with anyone. So there's a sort of interregnum period there of six or seven months uncertainty. Uh, Carl Weinberg wrote a brilliant note today dovetailing in currency move, the dynamics that brings on with diminished GDP and the dynamics that that brings on into some form of inflation increase and the dynamics that there's a pattern here, folks, as you, you can see. The doubt we hear in interviews is the linkage there assumes higher inflation. Do you assume that for a United Kingdom that has a jump condition in currency and a diminished GDP? I don't see that at all. I, I think, again, uh, critical will be the nature of the next government. But you could imagine a government coming into power in UK 
um, which is much more free market um, conservative than is the outgoing government. And I think a critical question here is is going to be the future of Bank of England Chief Carney. I mean, after all, he was so much associated with the um, pro-EU camp and didn't act independently that it's very difficult to see how he could continue under a new government. So the question is, what sort of replacement do we get here? And it could be that, in fact, the UK leads away towards a more conservative-type monetary policy. How worried uh, are the British, and especially the Bank of England, going to be uh, about the pound? It is, at the moment, trading for 137.25. It's down uh, almost 8%. It was earlier suggested that uh, that's not altogether a bad thing because uh, it will increase British competitiveness. Well, and it's certainly true in the, in the short term, whilst we have all the uncertainty as to what sort of deal is going to be done between the UK and um, the remaining EU, so long as the remaining EU stands together, um, a weaker pound will produce some welcome increase in profitability for multinationals operating in the UK and, and tide, tide the export side of the economy through this period. So, so it could be welcome in that respect. Um, but as I say, I think medium term, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the pound, in fact, improving if we could no. a, a change. And, and um, it's for euro where the pressure will be building up. Brendan Brown with us, with his PhD from Chicago, has done better, excuse me, from London, and his MBA from Chicago, has done better than good at linking math into what we're doing here. And your math is don't look back at David Cameron, look forward to Italy and Spain and the measurements we look at in a peripheral Europe. Why are we again looking at peripheral Europe? Because ultimately the backstop for the Italian and Spanish government bond markets are the, is the idea that Germany is always going to be there to bail them out and stand behind whatever the ECB does in terms of um, lending to those countries. Now, given the changed political climate and the increased um, support likely for the anti-Euro parties in Germany, one can imagine that Merkel, and most likely the successor to Merkel, is not going to be so happy about Draghi continuing, if need be, to bail out those countries through the back door of the ECB or by any other means. So to some extent, we have to look at these bond markets as in any ultimate um, squeeze as being more likely to be on their own. And I think that's what markets are reflecting beginning to reflect. Mm -hmm. It could get a lot worse. Do we uh, have an economic problem on the continent? It, it, there are a lot of people say that uh, things are not as bad as they may be portrayed. They, they are at, at best muddling along here, or at worst muddling along here, and that maybe we're starting to see some of the ECB's extraordinary policy actions take root. And um, so, so I guess the first question is, do we have a, a pre-existing condition of concern for the European economy and how does this affect it? I think in terms of the coming back to the Italian and Spanish government bond markets, yes, there is a precondition. Uh, I think most investors have in their mind the idea that Italy is very fragile from a financial standpoint, most of all its banking system, with its banks holding a large amount of the Italian government debt and, the, 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 and a lot of bad loans. And this is all hanging together um, essentially because of the ECB being there behind it lending to Italian banks. Now, <clears throat> if we see more criticism coming from within the CDU party and the German political spectrum about this German back backstop and the penalization of German savers getting negative rates to pay for all this, then I, I think there is a real concern here. Link in the concept all of our listeners hate, 
which is kick the can down the road. I don't believe that was taught at Chicago when you were there, but link in kick the can down the road to the idea the can stopped in the political environment. Well, you can kick the can down the road if there's the idea that ultimately Merkel's always going to say yes to Draghi or whoever it is at the ECB. But that regime may be coming to an end, um, and the German public's patience with Merkel may be running out. And at that stage, the can can no longer be kicked down the road. I believe you're British. Yeah. From the United <laughs> Kingdom. Boris Johnson is prime minister. To us away, he seems a different prime minister. Would he be a different prime minister? Very, that, that's very much, I think, the hope of many, many people, and that um, the, the triumvirate of um, Cameron and Osborne and Carney were very much seen by many people, I think, as a, a very centrist government, if not like a, a, a Labour government of the past, and uh, certainly not in any way ideologically committed to free markets or um, low, ta low taxes. And um, this is possible, uh, I think, for hope under uh, Boris Johnson. There would be a regime shift. There would be a regime but shift. But then last night, listening to the wonderful coverage of the three major networks in the United Kingdom, I also got a sense that Labour's in the same turmoil. Will Mr. Corbyn be giving a speech soon, as we heard from the Prime Minister today? La Labour is in the same turmoil, but, um, of course, it's very much removed from power. So the interest yeah. in the conservative side, any, any pressures mm. are going to be much more meaningful in terms of markets or the way right. the economy is going to go from the conservative side. What will you think about this weekend? Mike and I, folks, will have a lot of special coverage for you this weekend. We are thrilled uh, to be in London and thrilled. Uh, Mike, I was going to go to the Churchill War Museum, but we're having a war museum out here, <laughs> so I don't need to do that. But, but what, what will Brendan Brown be thinking about or writing about or going back to historically test in your mind this weekend to get ready for Monday markets? What I've been looking at in particular is, and it's been a long-running theme of mine, that the world is in a very severe dose of asset price inflation due to what's been happening with central banks. Now, the crash we've had in the Tokyo market this year, which has been, of course, amplified by the Brexit means we've had a very a major asset class fall sharply. And that very often is a late mid-phase of the asset price inflation cycle, which goes on then to a final stage. So my question is, is what's happening in Tokyo uh, a lead I indicator agree. of what may happen, happen more generally? Because, Mike, the linear function, I don't mean to monopolize this, Mike, but I'm finally focused after... You've had your tea. Uh, I've had my. I'm actually, folks, I am drinking more tea here. Thanks to Twinings for the Bloomberg uh, tea. I, I agree with you that all our eyes are off the failure of Abinomics. Can Brendan Brown say Abinomics is a failure? I think at this stage it's quite clear it's a failure, yes. It's, it's, at 102. Yeah. Dollar yen. Folks, we've moved there. To, we've shown that chart so many times. And in terms of yeah. the stock market, it, it's, its basis was pumping up the stock market, and that's completely failed. Interesting. Brendan Brown, thank you so much. Greatly thank appreciate you. it on this historic day. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.